Oh, Father in heaven, we give you thanks for sealing your people in this covenant love that you have forged in placing your own son, the Lamb of God, Jesus, on the cross to pay for the sins of your people. Father, we pray that we might know in fullness the ministry of your Spirit who reminds us again and again of your mercy and your pardon and a righteousness which we did not earn but belongs to Jesus and has been granted to all those who believe upon him. I pray, Father, that you will help us in this congregation to believe the gospel, this good news that Christ is sufficient. I pray, Lord, that you will be with those in this congregation who are sick or recovering from illness. I ask, Father, that you might even shield and protect this congregation from further illness or sickness. We pray for those who are weak, recovering. Some are weak and recovering from illness. Others are weak and recovering from heavy, sorrowful, grieving places. We ask, Father, for the ministry of your Spirit to bring comfort and peace to them who grieve, to be who the psalmist said you are, that is the lifter of our countenance and our God. I pray, Father, as has been prayed for this mission team that is leaving this upcoming weekend, we pray for them as they go and as they return. We ask, Father, that you will shield and protect them from illness. We especially pray that your spirit would go before them and that you will prepare these good works that you've promised to prepare beforehand, that they might even walk in them. I pray, O God, that your spirit would transform hearts. And Lord, we pray that you will be with our civil government our state government, our local governments in the city of Auburn and Opelika, as well as the county. We lift up to you those who are elected and those who are appointed. They serve in those spots because you have put them there. And so we pray for wisdom for each of them. We pray that they would see themselves as those who serve under God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will bring peace in this world where there is war we pray that you would crush evil that you would protect the weak the vulnerable heavenly father we pray that you will take care of those who are anxious and frightened by circumstances and events related to war around the world you are a god of peace We pray that you would subdue evil, that you would protect life. Heavenly Father, we pray for the persecuted church. There are some who are called by your name in the places where war rages. We pray that you will give them the faith to wait upon you, to believe you, to trust you that you would uphold and secure them where they are fearful. As Peter says, give them the strength to stand under the various dangers that they face. And Father, we ask 
that you would also be with this congregation, that we might be transformed and not forget our connection to the universal church so that when she suffers in other places, we also might rightly grieve, but pray for her. We pray that we would not become so addicted to comfort and peace and calm and the ease of this nation that we would forget that you are the one who secures us. And now as we come to your word, we ask that you would quiet us beneath it, settle our hearts, and give us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a moment, I'm going to ask Will to read our passage for us. We're going to look at Exodus 12, so if you'll turn there with me. We continue to walk through the book of Exodus. Uh, We're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which is our, our pattern here. Today we come to the introduction of the Passover. We've got nine plagues behind us, and Moses and Aaron's role has changed right here. They were talking to Pharaoh, and now God says, don't worry, I'll talk to Pharaoh, you talk to my people. I'll handle him, you just shepherd, you just intercede on behalf of my people. So here with the Passover, God introduces a lamb slain, and from this feast, everything changes for God's people from here forward. So I'll ask Will to read chapter 12, verse 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. To all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments." I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray and ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would help us, that we might have ears to hear what your Spirit says to your people. More than that, would you be willing to wield a sinful, crooked stick like me in your hand just simply to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus? We pray 
that you would grant us these things, for our need is great. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. There are just moments in life that you know from here forward everything is about to change. It's going to be different than it was before. Some of you can relate to that in difficult ways. You have already at this point borne moments of pain or loss, whether it's jobs or people, relationships, or maybe even the loss of hope. Somewhere deep down in those moments, you know, from here forward, everything is going to be different. Others can relate to this in, in really positive ways. I remember loading my car as an 18-year-old and, and driving from Nashville to Auburn, and I drove and I thought to myself, nothing will ever be quite the same as it was before. And then I remember looking up the long aisle and seeing Susan walk down the aisle. I remember hearing her words, I do. I remember the pastor declaring us husband and wife, and with all the most wonderful sense, I thought, nothing will ever be the same as it was before. And then with every precious child that the Lord has granted me the privilege of holding, I, I looked in their sweet, tiny faces, and I thought, nothing will ever be the same as it was before. Life is full of moments like that. And Exodus 12 is one of those moments. For the people of Israel, this is a, a moment that changes everything for everyone. All at the same time. From this moment, in all the most positive ways, nothing will ever be the same as it was before. It'll be different, but you know, don't you? Sometimes different is scary. Not because the coming change is bad, but rather... Change represents for us the unknown. Wouldn't it be great if the Lord was to meet every life change with a physical sign to tell you you're not alone? In some ways, that's exactly what the Passover meal is. A sign to confirm everything from here forward will be different, and I, the Lord, will be with you every step of the way. The lamb, the, excuse me, the Passover lamb changes everything for God's people. And so from here forward, God's people have a new future, they have a new freedom, they have a new forgiveness. We're going to start with a new future. I have borrowed some components of this particular sermon from another PCA pastor. I don't borrow whole sermons. I borrow some verbiage. That's what I'm doing here. It's a new future. I want you to imagine that you were born into a world where your whole destiny was predetermined from the moment you saw the light of day. You were born to serve Pharaoh, to be his slave. In whatever backbreaking work he determined that you should do. Not only is your future mapped out from day one, it's been that way for as long as you can remember for everyone you've ever known and loved. Every one of your ancestors had a predetermined course, a, a hopeless existence in a country like Egypt where you, you simply take for granted the fact that you're born and you die and in between you serve Pharaoh. It's not the way it is for you, is it? Most of you are born with a privileged position that you take for granted. 
You're born with the, with the chance to have an opportunity to pursue something that you're interested in, to pursue hopes and dreams and education or a trade to match your skills and your gifts. That would not be true if you were born in slavery, seeing their tears. God moved in compassion toward them. He said, I'm going to buy you out of slavery, and when I do, everything else will be reset. God's way of communicating this newfound future was to give them a new calendar and a new community. The first you notice the new calendar. Take a look at verse 2. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. How do slave people determine time? I mean, think about it. Does counting really even matter if every day you wake up and you do the exact same thing? Most of us are accustomed to a five-day work week. You relish Friday afternoon. You say, oh, I'm about to be off for the weekend. And then every so often, someone sprinkles in a Monday off and you get a three-day weekend. You get Martin Luther King or Memorial Day or President's Day or Labor Day. Somebody gives you three or four days at Thanksgiving or a week at Christmas, maybe two. And then you, because you get to control some of these elements, also get to map out various vacations along the way. Some are short. I'm going to take a quick trip up to the lake. Some are longer. I'm going to go to the beach or the mountains with my family. What if you don't control any of that? What if every day is exactly the same and every week is exactly the same and every year is exactly the same? Your entire future is devoted to whatever someone else tells you to do. That's slavery. God says, I'm changing all that and it starts with a calendar. From now on, your year begins with a reminder that I, the Lord, changed your days, changed your weeks, changed your years and your destiny. It's I, the Lord, who gives you a future with new possibilities. Incidentally, this calendar is going to be built on lunar cycles, on the cycles of the moon, and it, and it coincides with March and April. And you know that the Passover is also going to coincide with spring to teach them that life in Egypt as you know it is dead. Like winter, it's in the past. We've turned the calendar. Your new life begins today with me, says Yahweh. And your future is marked by a new beginning and a new nation. And from now on, you're going to reckon all of time from this event. God's way of communicating this newfound future was to give them a new calendar, but also to give them a new community. Take a look at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Some of you have asked me during this study, what do we, what do we call this people in the midst of this Slavery. You've seen them called Hebrews, which refers to their ethnicity. You've seen them called sons of Israel. That's a reminder that they're descended from the patriarch Jacob, the one to whom God showed surprising grace. God transformed Jacob from this deceiving heel grabber 
into a man that he called Israel, one who wrestled with, Lord, with the Lord and God caused him by grace to prevail? Well, these are his sons. But this is the first time in all of the Bible that you've ever seen the word com- excuse me, congregation as a way to describe these people. It's sometimes translated community like it is in the NIV. It's sometimes translated assembly. And though this is the very first time that we meet this description of this people, it's going to be used a hundred more times between this point and when you get to Joshua. Why does God call them by this term? Because he has gathered and formed them a scattered, oppressed slave people into a community. One pastor said they are to be shaped by this common experience, the Passover, and they are moving in a common direction. That is the promised land. And so this particular word becomes paramount in the rest of the Bible. So when the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew to Greek between the 3rd and 1st centuries B.C., This word is grabbed, this word for congregation, and they start using the term ecclesia, which is the way the New Testament refers to the church. I wonder if you can see the spiritual significance. A new gathering of former slaves who once were bound by sin And now they are shaped by this common experience of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. And they are moving in a common direction, not to the promised land, Canaan, but to a better promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And you can hear in this beautiful word, community, this idea of common unity. I always wondered when I read this passage in the past why they make such a description of this lamb This week I finally understood. A lamb for a household or, verse 4, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. One lamb for a household, but if that's too much, then you share the lamb with another household or two or three. You don't divide up the lamb. You add families because you are one people united together under this single lamb and the blood of that single lamb it can be spread over several different doorposts but the body of the lamb it's not cut up or divided instead it draws you together in unity it's almost as if This was a a picture of the unity of God's people fed and nourished under the Lamb of God in one congregation, in one assembly, one community. Christians, you were meant to be in one body. You weren't meant to be uh, multiple, various, random, crazy, unconnected Christians who go and feast on your own leg of lamb as you shop for churches, and you might stay there for a little while if you like the pastor and you like the music okay. Rather, you were meant to come together 
under the Lamb of God, and you were meant to stay there and feast and fellowship and be nourished. That sounds totally anti-American. That sounds completely unfit for our ears, doesn't it? You mean I don't get to have my own leg of lamb in the corner? Separate from everywhere else, everyone else, where it's just me and, and Jesus, my own unseen, my own unknown, my own unshared spiritual life over here in the corner? You might have to join together with others. I have to join myself and, and pledge myself to something bigger than me? Yeah. That's what the term means. That's what congregation means. Why was this new future so necessary for God's people? Because, friends, if God does not flip the calendar, then they will continue to believe that they are more shaped by their past than they are by their future. Friends, I wonder if you can hear this. If you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then God has flipped your calendar. You are no longer to be shaped by your past. And let's be honest, who really wants to be remembered for what you were 5, 10, 15, 30 years ago? Who wants to find their identity in those people that you were in and around that many, that many years ago? How many of you want to be identified with your former slavery? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Is it too far to say that God gave you a new calendar when you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ? That he's given you a new community when you joined the local church and decided, these are my people. These are God's people. This is where I belong. You need this new future. And it's offered to you in a, in a new calendar, and it's offered to you in a new community more than you could ever know. A Passover lamb changes everything for God's people. This new calendar, this new community, it is a declaration. You have a new future. Secondly, God says this meal signals a new freedom. Everybody knows about the physical bondage. We've read about that for weeks Pharaoh enslaved God's people physically for more than four centuries. But you can't live for generations in a foreign nation and not adopt the culture of that nation. You can't, you can't fail to adopt the spiritual bondage of those people. So let me give you a quick perspective. Most of you live on this continent because your ancestors were either brought here or they decided to move here. How many generations back do you have to go to find the first person in your family to set foot on this continent? And who among you knows anything meaningfully about the spiritual condition of your first ancestor who set foot on this nation? And we're just talking like a couple hundred years back at most. Even if you could trace it all the way back to the Mayflower you're still just barely talking about 400 years. I mention that because you might look at this slave nation and recognize that they have almost no similarities 
to Abraham, their father of faith. Just as you really look nothing like your Dutch or Scottish or Irish or German or French ancestors, they look more like Egypt than they do like Abraham, the man of faith. And the instructions of the Passover signaled a new freedom and a new spirit, a, a, a freedom from their spiritual bondage of their pagan past. They're going to take this blood and they're going to wipe it around their doorpost and above the door. And then, verse 8, take a look at it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Everything about this meal is a signal that the Passover meal marks a new spiritual freedom for God's people. So oftentimes when you encounter cooking instructions from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, it is God's way of saying, don't be like the pagans. Don't eat what they eat, because in paganism, food and worship flow together. They're intermingled with all kinds of other gross practices. God's saying, don't eat what they eat. Don't feast on what they feast on. Don't celebrate the filth that they celebrate. Scholars tell us that in Egypt, there was a springtime feast where animals would be dismembered and their organs and their body parts would be consumed raw or boiled. God says, let's leave that in the pagan rituals of the past. The bitter herbs are meant to remind them that life in spiritual bondage was really bitter. If you read further in this story, though, you know, like I do, that the people of Israel often grumble about their new freedoms. They're going to be tempted to fall back and, and worship those pagan gods. The golden calf, which is coming in a few weeks, the bitter waters at Meribah, and so many others. Why do they have so much trouble with freedom from false gods. The same reason you do. One pastor rightly said, too many of us would rather have the bondage we know than trust the God we can't see. Rather have the bondage you know than the God than trust the God you can't see. I wonder if that's where you are today. I'm sure, I mean, I don't like repeating this sin. I don't like what it does to me. I don't like the way it makes me feel. But I go there, and I, and I give myself to these idols, these, these old patterns of sin, because I understand them. They're comfortable to me. They are predictable. And even though I can't really control it, at least I know how it's going to take me into the place of bondage and how long I'm going to be held there, how long I'm going to have to suffer. Contrast that with a God that I can't really understand. He's not really predictable. And I guess I, I, I struggle to believe that he can be trusted. The bondage you know versus the God you can't see. Here's the profound truth. The bondage is always and only still bondage. It is still slavery, which is always worse. Which is why God says to them, let me show you how to be decisive in your faith. 
Because if you're going to leave the bondage of your past and, and enter into a new freedom, you must be ready to move in haste. That's the idea of the unleavened bread. We don't have time for our bread to rise. Let's eat it and go. It's also the idea behind verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Uh, In the ancient world, of course, men wore long robes. When they needed the freedom to move, they would grab the robe and they would tuck it up into their belt. So the Passover lamb is eaten in faith with, with robe tucked, sandals on, staff in hand. Why? Because we've been waiting for 400 years to be set free. And this is the moment to believe God. This is the moment to act in faith. But it's not really just about speed, like put on your track spikes. It's about decisive faith. God says, I'm offering you freedom And this is the moment to act decisively in faith. And friends, if you claim Christ as your Savior, I hope you can see the correlation. In Christ, God offers you a freedom from your actual sin, which is why each moment is the the now moment. Now is the moment to act decisively in faith and to leave the bondage for what purpose? So that you can get out to leave those defeated idols of the past, to say in faith, Lord, I don't even know how you will deliver me, but I trust you. I wonder if you can envision what kind of faith it took to keep the Passover meal that first time and say, okay, Lord, I'll move ahead. All they've ever known is bondage. It's what they're comfortable with. It's the pattern that they're used to. It's their culture. And it is incredibly easy for the things that you used to do to be the patterns that you repeat, the culture that you're comfortable with, or slip back into the place where you desire to stay. The Bible says, but it's bondage. Do not let the comfort you feel in your sin patterns keep you from moving forward in obedience to God. But it always requires obedience to move ahead in this new freedom that God offers. If you were with us when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we saw there the Apostle Paul dealing with a problem of sexual immorality in this church. And he uses this concept to compel God's people toward a new obedience, a decisive obedience. He's talking to those people who are tolerating the sexual immorality in the church. And he says, the reason you can't let the sexual immorality fester is because, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, uh, life goes from darkness to light. From lies to truth. The Passover lamb changes everything for God's people. A new future, a new freedom. We'll close with a new forgiveness. Just select a lamb on the 10th day. 
keep it with you. Four days later, the 14th day, you kill the lamb at twilight. Then you spread the blood over the doors. Now, verse 12 would have totally met their expectations. Look at it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment. I am the Lord. Yes, you are. This is Yahweh. He executes judgment on on Egyptians and on Egyptian gods. This is our Lord. And you can almost hear them say, yes, yes, yes. And then verse 13 would be a complete surprise. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Their first thought would have been, of course no plague is going to fall on us. I mean, we're your people. I wonder if God needed to make it any more clear. Did he really need the blood spread over the doorpost in order to know who his people were? Is he walking with a flashlight at midnight through Egypt? Nope, wait, stop, nope, don't kill this one. Pass over there, maybe we can get somebody at the next house. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it worked at all. God says, it's a sign for you. The people of God fully expected that the Lord would execute justice on wicked, pagan, cruel, sinful Egyptians. But the Passover says, you don't understand the way forgiveness works. Here's the lesson of the Lamb. You deserve to die too. Verse 13, I've decided to see the blood. I've decided to shield you, to pass over you with my righteous punishment of death. I've chosen not to strike you with the full destruction that your sins deserve. I give this by grace and nothing else. By calling this a a new forgiveness, I'm not saying that there was never forgiveness before this. I'm saying this might be the first time that any of them understood their own need for forgiveness. You see, these are radically imperfect people. They continue to be that way. Just like you, they still carry around some of the old sins of Egypt. And so if you think that forgiveness is an issue that you took care of in the past and you can just move on and you're never really going to need it again, you should know that more than 40 years later, after this entire generation dies, their children come to renew the covenant at a place called Shechem, which incidentally is the exact same spot where God made these salvation promises to Abraham. And so Joshua tells them 40 years after the salvation was given at the Passover, put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Do you see the point? They never stopped needing new forgiveness. You've never stopped 
needing new forgiveness. The blood was never a sign to help God remember that he forgives sins or how to forgive sins. The blood was a sign for you to help you remember that Yahweh can and does forgive sins to help you remember and believe and exercise this muscle of faith. You're going to think I'm a heretic when I say this. They are not saved by blood and a lamb. They are saved by grace through believing in faith that God would accept a a four-legged lamb as sufficient their faith was in God. You see, if an Egyptian would have heard this and spread blood and eaten the feast as God prescribed, God would have passed over their house as well because they heard it and they believed it and acted in faith. The Bible says that Jesus is the full and final, sufficient and spotless Passover lamb. The last lamb who ever needs to be slain because blood was always a sign for you to help you remember that Yahweh can and does forgive sins to help you remember and believe to exercise this muscle of faith. So the Bible says, finally, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain so that you may be saved by grace through believing in faith that God would accept his own lamb who is the Christ, and say, that lamb's sufficient. You need forgiveness constantly. And in Christ, it has been paid fully. Believe it. The Passover lamb changes everything for God's people. Let's pray.